HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. All right, all right. Yes, that's right. It is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, We are going to jump right into our interview today. I'm interviewing the one and only uh, Chuck Abbott, who runs a fantastic uh, site called The Ag Insider, uh, which is part of the Food and Environmental Reporting Network. This is a daily compilation sort of newsletter that he puts together that I think is just amazing. I'm going to read his bio now. He is a contributing editor at Fern, Food and Environmental Reporting Network. And with three decades of Washington experience, Chuck Abbott is an old hand at covering U.S. food and agriculture policy at the national level, ranging from the nutrition facts labels on food and the never-ending tussle over food stamp rules to renovation of the farm program. Abbott, who grew up on a farm in northern Illinois, was a longtime Reuters commodities correspondent in Washington after a stint as the national farm editor for United Press International. Um, And once again, the name of his publication is the Ag Insider. And if you want to sign up for it, and I highly recommend it, um, you can either write to Chuck at thefern.org, uh, or you can just go to The Fern, um, and uh, they will have a tab for Ag Insider, and that will prompt you to um, you know pay your money, and you will get this every day in your mailbox. And it is really well worth its time. Um, Chuck, thanks so much for joining me on this show. This is our first, this is our maiden voyage together. Um, well, it's been a long time since we've talked. It's, it's very true. We, you and I have never talked. You have been on oh. um, on uh, Jenna Liut's show. Oh, 
uh, oh, which oh is called goodness. which well, is called Eating Matters. Um, I, I have. Well, I, I should pay more attention. Yes, you should. I have long wanted to invite you onto the show, and somehow I guess our paths just like I've tried a couple times, and you had. I think you had some um, personal issues that prevented you from joining me, and what one thing after another, and but here you are, and here we are together. All right. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. The there's actually the flow of news got in the way of being able to talk about the news. Jesus, no kidding, man. I mean, every day it's just it's 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 just an outrage. So today, for instance, I'm driving back from Rhode Island to do this show, and also after you, I'm um, uh, interviewing Olivier de Shooter, which I'm very excited about as well. It's, oh, this is like oh, wow. a, this is an incredible doubleheader for me, like the culmination yeah. of literally years of admiration from afar, um, and especially in the case of de Shooter, he's super hard to get uh, because he doesn't live in the states and. And um, I have tried many, many times, literally over the course of, of hosting this program, which is now going on over eight years. So um, anyway, Chuck, first of all, I think you need to tell people a little bit more about Ag Insider so that um, they really understand what I'm talking about, because I'm not sure how great my description was. All right. Thank you. I'll, I'll try to make this brief. Ag Insider is a daily, well, daily, maybe Monday through Friday, electronic newsletter, you know, electronic meeting. It's posted on the internet and it's available by email if you read it on the internet you can read the first paragraph for free or you can subscribe and reading the newsletter in full it's uh, as our interest said it's uh, it covers food and agriculture and environment policy mostly from a washington dc perspective but and if there's a if there's interesting news, we're not constrained by saying it has to be within the Beltway. Hmm. Um, the um, newsletter was launched in early 2014. I said, yeah, 2014. It, 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 it seems like a lot longer ago. I'm sure it does <laughs> it from is. your point of view. <laughs> um, it began as a, as a, as a very, first, very, very, you know, like one paragraph per story. And over the, over the last three or four years, the uh, folks at uh, Food and Environment Reporting Network have put more resources into it so that it's now a much larger publication. Um, and, you know, we write our own, and we write, it's much, it's much more common for us to produce our own news rather than just um, letting folks know, geez, somebody else has a good story. But you uh, today, do for some. Instance, we talked about, uh, you know, Sam Clovis, most controversial USDA nominee in 15 years. So, at least we're going to talk about him a little bit more, but but you also aggregate stories from other sources, don't you? In in addition That's to the own, the reporting that you do as well, so it's really it's a very well rounded publication, uh, in my opinion. I I enjoy it thoroughly, and I and I do I do get it. Um, but so anyway, so now that we've covered that, let's talk about Sam Clovis, the most controversial nominee for the USDA in 15 years. First of all, who is Sam Clovis? Um, you know, describe who he is and also the position that he's nominated for, for which he has no apparent relevant skills. Okay. Uh, Sam Clovis um, was, uh, according to the CCB Journal, somebody who had almost rock star status among Tea Party activists in northwestern Iowa mm. uh, a few years ago. He ran for, you know, he had a, talk, a radio talk show on conservative issues. He ran as a conservative for the Republican nomination for Senate, did not, did not succeed at that, and, and, and vaulted last summer into being a national co-chair of the Trump Pence presidential campaign. 
he was the you know the chief policy advisor to Trump, and more importantly, um, he had he was very active importantly for our our discussion. He was he was active in the farmers and ranchers committee to support Trump. He was the intermediary for Trump with farm groups during and the farm audience during the campaign. Yeah, he would appear on um, you know, radio show radio interview shows to promote Trump's um, agricultural policy, which is basically, you know, we love ethanol, we're going to back off in regulations, we love the the free market, um, which resonated very well with with rural America, because it's, you know, that's an area that, you know, leans toward political conservatism, um, where it's a stretch of the world where self-reliance is a uh, common virtue. And you know, the president you know, rolled up huge margins in rural areas. Yes, he did. Um, anyway, so, try, anyways, continue. Now, Sam closed his background. He's a veteran of the, armed, of the Air Force, spent you know, two decades in the Air Force. He has degrees in economics, business administration, and, and, a, and a doctoral degree in public administration. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was a an economics professor at Morningside College in Sioux City, Iowa. Since, <laughs> since the campaign ended, he has been the leader of the what's called the Trump Beachhead Team at USDA. Those are the political operatives that were sent over to the department to run it while Trump, while the political appointees get confirmed to, to the official jobs, mm-hmm. like like. Agriculture secretary or deputy secretary or undersecretary. Right. Those are the policy, you know, policymaker jobs. Um, Give you an idea how important Clovis has been. When USDA held its its annual two day extravaganza of all things economic and agricultural, it's called the USDA Ag Outlook Forum. Um, there was no agriculture secretary available, so Sam Clovis. And Terry Branstad, governor of Iowa, um, yeah. you know, now U.S. ambassador to China, filled in for the for in the, in the time slot normally reserved for the agriculture secretary. Right. Um, Incredible. So, so Clovis, you know, I mean, like when he when he was when the White House last week said the president intended to nominate him, uh, Secretary uh, Purdue said that Clovis is a trusted advisor and a steady hand. Um, and that uh, he's somebody who will look at issues with a critical eye, relying on sound science and data. <laughs> the, uh, you, you laugh because you know the punchline. You know the, the next sentence is going to be: He's nominated for a job under Secretary for Research, which, according to statute, is to go to someone who is a you know, it was supposed to be come from a, a field of distinguished science with specialized or extensive. Um, experience in economics, education, and um, research, agricultural right. research. Agric- yeah, let, we, it's important to mention the agricultural part of that, since right. he does not have that. He does right. not have Which, any of those know, qualifications. From my, my description of his background, yeah. know, a college professor with degrees in you know, economics, um, business administration, and public administration. He does not, on the face of it, he does not have the, the, the resume that fits the job. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, three senators, Debbie Stabenow from Michigan, Pat Leahy from Vermont, mm-hmm. Chris Coons from Delaware, have made statements questioning if Clovis is, you know, has, you know, has the quality, has the qualification. Um, it's important that, uh, that to, 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 to establish name because she is the lead Democrat on the Senate Agriculture Committee. That's, That's right. the committee that will review the nomination whenever it eventually gets to the to the Capitol Hill. Right. Excuse me, when it gets to Capitol Hill. Um, Stabenow can be pretty steely in her operations. She's, you know, for instance, during the negotiations of the 2014 farm law, she was insistent that, you know, the farm, the new bill, the farm bill, was not going to reduce participation in food stamps. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, the, um, the farm bill included a reduction in food stamp spending, but it did not explicitly reduce enrollment. So uh. if Debbie Stamow is concerned about somebody, you know, it can be a you know, it can be a an obstacle. And we also have to mention that Pat Leahy also is on the agriculture committee. So yeah. if he so but yeah. It's it's on the other side of it, um, the folks at Politico today say that um, you know a dozen or so of the agricultural groups are gonna have a joint letter out today. That will that will that will support the confirmation of Sam Clovis, and it'll argue that you know he's a wonderful advocate for agriculture and for you know the field that he's going to be representing. So you know, it doesn't matter whether he ha- you know strictly fits the bill or not. Yeah. Know, he'll be a good leader. Um, you know. And that gets the question of all well, that. How much do people want to make a uh, a big deal out of it? It's uh, you know, and that's that's the the question to watch into the future whether um, you know, whether the Democratic senators on the committee and the Democratic caucus in general decides this is a fight worth having, right? Or whether you know, as in the case with some of the cabinet nominees, you know, like Scott Pruitt of uh, at EPA. Yeah. Whether it'll be a, a, a matter of you know, Democrats raise the complaints, but the majority party Republicans say Too America bad. voted for change. Right. And we'll, you know, and our candidates will carry out that you know the sort of change that America and, the, and President Trump want to see. Hmm. Well, we'll see. We're going to talk about trade. We're going to talk about treaties and NAFTA in a few minutes. Um, And we'll just see how much those farmers are going to love those trade treaties that are going to be. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what's I don't know what to I don't know enough about uh, how the trade uh, uh, protocols of, of, you know, how the treaties impact American farmers. Um, But I I have the feeling that uh, what uh, Clovis um, and Sonny Perdue at all are going to be focusing on is is not going to be necessarily uh, for the well-being of the rank and file of the farming community. It's going to be for the well-being of the mega agribusesses like Tyson, Smithfield, Cargill, you know, that of that ilk. But we'll we'll talk about that for a minute because I, I want to just while we're talking about policymakers, I want to talk for a second about Sonny Perdue um, because he 
you know, he notably, uh, you know, had some pushback on the idea of slashing food stamps um, or, you know, cutting funds for rural development. And so I, I wondered if you thought he would be the one and only standout in the Trump administration who is actually furthering the cause of his agency rather trying to, than trying to um, take it apart, uh, a la Pruitt, uh, a la Price. Um, do you think he's going to be a force for good in farming, or do you think he will just, um, you know, play to the corporate interests uh, to a degree that we probably haven't seen in quite a while? Well, you know, one of the, when you ask about something to do, I'm reminded that the outgoing Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack at the end of 20, uh, end of 2016 would, you know, practically tell anybody who would listen that he thought the ideal person to nominate for agriculture secretary would be a governor. Now, would be, sorry, who? say Bill Sack was biased because he's the former governor. Uh. But, you know, his, his arguments were that governors are used to having, you know, large and diverse um, portfolios and having to be able to move from one issue to another. And this leads up to the president nominated Sonny Perdue, a former two-term governor of Georgia, a guy who started out as a Democrat, converted to a Republican, became yeah. the first Republican elected governor of Georgia since Reconstruction. Yes, and if you watch Sonny Perdue or read some of his read some of his comments, he's a man who does have good political skills. Yeah, and, and so you get to the question of well, what's happening with food stamps and all that stuff? You, know, you got to remember, Sonny Perdue was not. You know, you know, Sanford was nominated because he supported the Trump agenda. Yeah. His comments to date, which, you know, like when he went to the uh, House Appropriations Subcommittee to talk about the, the proposed budget, and people asked about big cuts that were proposed by the president. Purdue said, essentially, you know, most of that was written before I took office in mid-May. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the budget that was written says we're going to keep keep operating at a pretty regular level. Mm-hmm. And that caused some, you'd say, some dissonance among reporters you know, because, you know, we've all written stories saying big cuts for the administration. Here was an, and here was an administration official seeming to, you know, be sort of reluctant and all that, but, you know, yeah, I remember the budget they were talking about is for the coming fiscal year. The big cuts that the Trump administration wants are proposed in the the following would take effect in the following fiscal year. Oh, I I see. Uh huh. And uh, and let me uh, also get to the um, you know the House Budget uh, Committee, which you know last week produced a budget resolution. Um, which is about two months, three months behind, actually three months behind schedule. The Congress has a goal of agreeing on a budget resolution by April 15th, income tax day, every year. Right. You know, the last few years, you know, they've, they've, that's not happened. <clears throat> but anyway, last week, House Budget Committee, controlled by Republicans, and came up with a budget uh, resolution. On the face of it, it calls for $10 billion in cuts from agriculture department programs. Yikes. But the language, and $10 billion, I'm going to say, like $10 billion is 
is not that much money. Ten million. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? This is brings back to mind. Yeah, Robert Dirksen, Senator from Illinois, said a billion here, a billion there. Yeah. <laughs> so you're talking about real money. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but anyway, I can say it's not a lot of money because the agriculture department spends about 150 billion dollars a year. Yeah. And as far as the programs that the Trump administration is talking about, which are the mandatory program, mandatory spending programs, which people call entitlements, which are things like uh, food stamps, school, you know, school, yeah, school lunch, school lunch um, WIC crop benefits, subsidy, yeah. Yeah, WIC, you know, um, those programs, um, those programs are around, you know, ninety billion to hundred billion a year. And you can say, and public nutrition, which is all the food programs, most well, most all the food programs. Well, you know, child nutrition is a, that that's a little, you know, it's it's treated a little bit oddly in in, in the way appropriates the account. Anyway, public nutrition is about two thirds, not two thirds, two thirds to three fourths of the USDA um, mandatory spending. Mm-hmm. So you know, you're getting into maybe seventy seventy five billion dollars a year. Food stamps, and then you say, we're going to cut $10 billion over 10 years. It's some amount of money, but it's not, you know, gonna, it's not slashing your wrist open and letting it bleed. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, yeah. as, as the, uh, the folks at the Food Research and Action Center have noted, because they've watched the whole darn markup and read the... Uh, the reports, which you know, explains a lot more than what you see in the, the, the dry list of numbers that the committee puts out in the bill. Uh-huh. They said, okay, $10 billion in farm bill programs, which I said, like, that's you know, crop subsidies, conservation, crop insurance, um, food stamps, yada, yada, yada. Okay, $10 billion this year. Then they say $150 billion in food stamp cuts over the long term. Oof. By uh, by converting to a block grant type of operation, oh, I see. and then uh, and then a 1.6 billion dollar cut in the community eligibility provision for school lunch and school breakfast. Huh. So, you know, when you look at where things are going, I mean, the, where they're going is that the Republican majority in the House, you know, as it has in the past few years, wants big cuts in public nutrition programs. <laughs> Yes. Notwithstanding Sonny Perdue, um, you know, saying, you know, Sonny Perdue, you know, standing with, you know, the, the, the budget that's been presented for this year. Right, right. So, yeah. So he's not so great, in other words. Well. I mean, so he's, what he's doing I mean, is. He's, I mean, he would, if you, when push comes, comes to shove, he would support what the administration has proposed. Right. I mean, and, he's, you know, he's part of the administration. That's right. And what the administration is proposing is, okay, not we're not going to do it this year, but the next year, conveniently after the uh, 2018 elections, um, then we're going to start right. rolling out these tremendous cuts to program and, enti- you know, I don't know, I don't want to call them entitlement right. programs, but p- programs right. that people depend upon. Right. Yeah, yeah. They're called entitlements because they operate on the, on the framework that if you, if someone meets a particular set of, you know, um, checkpoints, they are, they, they qualify. They're entitled to the payment. Right, right. Um, 
I mean, why, why, as Michelle Obama said famously, like, if, why would you want to feed children bad food? I mean, I know she, you know, it's just like, it just beggars the imagination. I don't understand the motivation behind this um, idea that uh, serving up uh, wholesome and nutritious food in school um, is somehow uh, a, a bridge too far in terms of, you know, giveaways to the the Mitt Romney takers, you know, I just, I, I really don't understand depriving children of, of adequate food, but um, that we will yeah. leave it there um, and okay. move on because again, sort of related to the farm bill a little bit, um, which I know we can't really talk about that much because we, of course we don't really know what's in it aside from these proposed cuts. Um, but farm incomes, uh, I was told by the somebody at the American Farmland Trust, who I spoke to quite extensively about a month or so ago. And he was saying that, the, and I've read this elsewhere, possibly on in your newsletter, that farm incomes are projected to be about 50% this year of what they were, you know, probably five years ago when corn prices were spiking up really high. Um, and I just wondered, you know, does that, uh, does that 50% income drop in farming, is that across the board? Is that livestock farming? Is it row crops? Is it everything? Or is it just the people who are involved in commodity farming like soy, corn, rice, uh, you know, cotton, sugar beets? I guess those are the big commodities, right? Yeah, Wheat. I, I, okay. Yeah, you've, yeah, you've, you've packed a lot into that question. I did. And <laughs> I it, always and do, it unfortunately. Also, <laughs> it also really you know, points to the, the the problem of a, you know, flying at 30,000 feet like we are talking about farm income. Yeah. Um, and yes, it, 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 you know, yes the, the figure covers... You know, or tries to cover all types of agricultural production. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, fruit and vegetable farms. Um, you, know, you know, people growing USDA likes to call it tree nuts. Um, <laughs> you know, the row, the big row crops like yeah. corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton, yada yada yada. Um, livestock operators. Yeah, it, it, it covers all that. Um, you know, the and when you, when we talk about when USDA reduces its you know, farm income forecast, which it does three times a year, the next uh, forecast to do on, on August 30th, uh-huh. it, uh, it, you know, try, it agglomerates all those sectors in the, in the, in the, in the economy to come right. up with one big number. Yeah, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah and and, and you know, during, you know, in the, the you know, lengthy uh, commentary. USDA, you know, picks out the various aspects of the, of the sector and talks about them. Like, you know, the, in, in March, which was the previous estimate, you know, they, they for instance, mention how are melon farmers doing. <laughs> so they really do try to pay attention to the various components. Now, again, we get back to the, to the you know, this big picture number, farm income. By one measurement, you're going to this because I will become the two-handed economist on the one hand, on the other. <laughs> By one measure, which is called net farm income, which sounds pretty, you know, that sounds like what you'd want to know. Yeah, yeah it is. Yes. Farm income is down 50% from its peak in 2013. Okay. And that's USDA's estimate for farm income, net farm income for this year. And, but, you know, because here we are, as I said, I'm the two-handed economist. Yeah. USD also has a figure called net cash farm income. Oh, net cash farm income. Farm income. Okay. Right. 
that's down 31 percent from the peak in 2013. Mm-hmm. So you get to think that, yeah, and there we go. Net cash income is a measure, USD says, you know, in the way USD is said, it's a measure of liquidity, meaning can you pay your bills? Uh-huh. I've seen one description which makes it a little more understandable, saying it's just like standard cash accounting. You know, you, like with your checkbook, you know, you, you, you get somebody pays you some money, you put it in one column, you pay some bills, you put it in another column, you keep adding and subtracting, you know, how much, how much money do you have in the bank? Right. That's sort of what net cash farm income is. Net farm income, the more exciting number here that we've been talking about, down 50%, yeah. is a measure of wealth. Huh. And it includes things like you have you know, 50,000 bushels of corn in, you know, some, you know, in storage in the local elevator, crane elevator in town. You know, and then you just pick a number, say, like on January 1st, what was the average, you know, the projected price of corn? And you multiply those 50,000 bushels, and that's what your corn is worth. Right. You know, three months later, you know, the market goes up, the market goes down, you do the same calculation, uh-huh. and you get a different number. Right. Well, that's, that's one of the reasons why net farm income can bounce around or take huge declines, because, you know, that, well, here we get back to... Yeah. Here we go back to why are you know why why are either of these key, you know, measurements of income down? And I kept I kept saying 2013. That's because 2013 was when a long-running boom in the ag economy collapsed. Uh huh. You go back to about around 20 you know 2006, and agricultural price you know. The, Average, you know, season average prices for corn, wheat, soybeans in the United States tripled over the next few years. Right. It went up to like nine, almost, uh, corn was almost $10 a bushel, I remember. Right, yeah. For about a year. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, yeah, one thing that happened with 2012, there was a horrendous drought. Right. Which really reduced the U.S. corn crop, which made every bushel that was harvested that much more valuable because there were so many fewer bushels available. Yeah. And the result is because it was harvested in 2012, that carries into 2013, because you, know, you harvest in the fall, and then you start sure. selling during the winter and into the spring. So 2013, you know, <clears throat> so essentially what happened in 2013 was the rest of the world started catching up. Uh-huh. And because there had been seven years of high prices, everybody around the world was growing you know, grain. Uh-huh. In the intervening years, there's been you know, huge Huge, you know, grain, grain and soybean production around the world. That's right. Um, last year, last year, like, this is a crazy measurement. You know, cereal grains, which there's food grains and feed grains. You know, corn, wheat, soybean, right? Barley, oats, sorghum. Um, try to throw them all together into one big number. It's like a record high, and this year it's going to be almost record high. Really. And that's in spite of drought and in spite of, say, like the big wildfires out in the center right, of the yeah, country. Yeah, right. and... yeah, yeah. I mean, when I say record high, I'm talking globally. Uh huh. So, yeah. So, yeah, you had you, know, you, you had good weather around the world for uh. you know, two or three years. Well, and, well, I say good weather. I mean, there was the El Nino, which caused problems in, you know, in Southeast Asia and in Africa. But, 
you know, this is one of the, you know, like when you're at the 30,000 foot level, overall things were good. Right, right. There were pockets where things were not good. Like I said, the only, you know, there were problems with rice production in South, Southeast Asia. Mm. Africa got hammered on uh, grain production. That's a peripheral reason why they're, you know, they're short on food in some countries. No. Um, and this year, you know, the United States has drought in the um, northern plains. Of course, three, you know, five years before that, we had drought in California. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Australia right now is going through a you know two or three months dry spell, and it's the you know it's early in the, the wheat growing season, so there's forecast that Australia is going to have a markedly smaller wheat crop this year than it had last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that Europe, will make the price go up because of scarcity, crop. right? Yeah, like when it speaks of, I'm sorry, what? That will make the price go up, though, because of the scarcity, correct? Uh, well, but, you know, the thing is, like, right now, world wheat supplies are huge. And you know, in, in the short, you know, in the longer run, if wheat production is constrained, yes, prices will go up. Um, Australia is like the fifth largest wheat exporter. Uh-huh. Actually, I had to look up these numbers recently. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, one of the big surprises <laughs> is that Russia this year, this marketing year, will be the world's largest wheat exporter. Uh-huh. Right now, the Russia is like down toward, you know, down the pack. Is that right? And, you know, it's, it's usually, you know, the, the, the European Union, Canada, the United States, Australia, uh, uh, Argentina, I think, is the other one. Yeah, I looked them up recently, but not recently yeah. enough to stick in my brain. Um, yeah, Argentina so grows a lot of food. Like right now is that you know, there's, there are huge inventory, huge grain inventories worldwide. Ah. So even with some, you know, some adverse weather this year, you know, overall the world is in, will, st- will remain in good shape. Right. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we go back to things collapsed in 2013 when the big crop, big crops started coming around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's here. It's four years later, and commodity prices, meaning you know, corn, wheat, soybeans, you know, other 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 they're called row crops. Yeah, that are that are sold in mass quantities. <laughs> And speculated um, and they're, upon. They're at comparatively low levels, and they're expected to stay there for the rest of the decade, and maybe huh. you know beyond that, because there just isn't, a, there just aren't enough changes in the global picture to to put things up very much. Although, if we go back to you know drought in the northern plains, Australia getting you know looking like look like it's heading for a small crop. I haven't even looked at Canada lately. But, you know, Canada is like right above North Dakota. And if it's dry sure. in North Dakota, it's probably dry in parts I would of the prairies so. in Canada. So maybe Canada won't have as good a wheat crop this year. So things could start trending towards, you know, price improvement. Uh huh. And that would have an impact on farmers, the farmers who are growing. And that would eventually, would, yeah. would, you know, come back to the right. farm level because if, if production falls, it doesn't have to fall a lot. That's one of the fascinating things about commodities, that a change of, you know, 2 or 3% sometimes can, be, can cause tremendous changes in prices. Uh-huh. If, if that 2 or 3% is the moment where you go from having an adequate supply to having a, for instance, a, you know, 
surplus or the other, the other direction, going from an adequate supply to being, you know, short. Right. So, so. Well, it's, I mean, to me, it's, I, I, because I don't have a financial background and I find it very hard to track. I, the thing that always strikes me as something that's kind there's something a little wrong with the kind of speculation, financial speculation in the commodities markets that have such an impact on pricing, as you've just described, you know, that something can change two or 3% and it can have this tremendous uh, knock-on effect for the people who are actually growing the crops. And, um, and then, and then as well, the ancillary businesses, that support that the tractors, the people who build the tractors and the, you know, the land prices. I mean, it's, it gets very complex very quickly. Um, and it's, it's just for somebody who doesn't have that, um, you know, uh, deep, uh, understanding and knowledge, uh, as you do of those impacts, it's, it's really difficult to figure out what is going to happen. And it, it you know, it just speaks again to the amazing amount of skill, and uh, extra knowledge you need to have to be a successful farmer nowadays, you know, especially if you're going to get into farming some of those commodity crops. Um, but I oh. wanted to, to move on a little bit because I wanted to talk um, just a bit about um, about uh, trade treaties and specifically about NAFTA because, um, you know, we, we have these uh, trading partners in NAFTA. We have Canada, Mexico, um, and I guess a few... No, I guess it's just Canada and Mexico, right? It's just North America. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, Canada and Mexico. United and then States. and then we talk about, you know, tweaking that agreement or throwing that agreement out and then when they started talking about that, then farmers got very nervous. Um but you know, what specifically is it that Trump is not liking about NAFTA because um he seems to blame it for you know the exportation of, you know, lots of jobs and yet it seems to me that we export a whole lot of food to both of those countries. Uh so I'm I'm having a hard time understanding where, you know, where it has fallen down on the job. Is it is it just the manufacturing part of it or because it seems to me that it would be really quite devastating to the agricultural world if we were to for instance um you know, get rid of some of those terms. Right. Uh, you've, yeah. uh, you've, you've, again, you packed a lot into that question. I know, Chuck. Uh, I'm really sorry. <laughs> Which is good. The I, way I think. To talk about. <laughs> when the president talks about NAFTA, his complaints, his loudest complaints have been about manufacturing jobs and manufactured goods. Uh-huh. And like, you know, like the, the example that got all the attention immediately after the election was oh, his point. intervention yeah. with the help of the state governor, um, who could provide some, uh, some incentives. And that state governor was Mike Pence. Yes. <laughs> surprise, <laughs> I mean, his, surprise. His intervention to save uh, jobs at the uh, carrier plant in, 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 the, in Indiana. I can't say that phrase very well. Um, that's, you know, that uh, jobs and trade deficits are the ways that the administration tends to talk about NAFTA. And the complaint is that the United States has trade deficits with Canada and especially with Mexico. Uh-huh. Um, on, on the agricultural side, it's much more balanced. Right. Um, and now I'm going to get into some numbers and just give me a moment. Okay. Canada and Mexico are 30% of U.S. agricultural trade. Wow. That's big, yeah, right? Yeah, Isn't that very yeah, big? Yeah. 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 Okay, that's, thank you. That's big. Uh, 30, and when I say agricultural trade, that, that's 
exports and imports. But the number is right. about the same, whether, you, whether you're looking, talking exports or imports. Um, the, way it, it, the way things rank in the world is that China is the, first, the largest customer for U.S. ag exports. Canada's number two, Mexico's number three. Uh-huh. But the gap between China and Canada is pretty small. Oh, is that right? Uh, huh. Yeah. Um, if the latest um, USDA, USDA puts out forecasts every you know, quarterly mm-hmm. on U.S. agricultural trade, and its latest forecast uh, has China buying $22.3 billion in farm exports this year, and Canada buying $21 billion. So, wow. in percentage terms, China is 16% of exports, Canada is 15%. Wow. Mexico would be 14%. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, when you, when you get to the top of the, you know, there's like a pack of three. Yeah. <laughs> and then things trail off after that. And on the import side, Mexico is the largest supplier of food and egg imports to the United States. Canada, Canada is second. Wow. And again, it's you know, like they're you know, right at 30% of imports. Now, the, I actually did these numbers. Um, the export total, oh my goodness, come on, Chuck. <laughs> the, you sound like The export mean. total is slightly smaller than the import total. Okay. Um, so, you know, um, so, you know, you could say maybe even then the administration has reasons to be mad. But for U.S. farm groups, you know, they love NAFTA because it's, you know, it's, bas- it's, it's basic. You know, one sentence description was it is duty-free access. Right. To, you know, which is important because, you know, no tariffs. Most, you know, um, That's so a huge deal. Mexico, yeah, yeah. So Mexico is like, you know, big, big buyer of U.S. corn, soybeans, pork, dairy products. Yep. Um, yeah, it was for, for, for a number of years, it was the largest single destination for U.S. corn. Right. Um, earlier this year, when Trump started, you know, talked about border tax, um, <laughs> and, you know, the U.S. and Mexico broke off a, a, a visit that uh, the president of Mexico was going to make to Washington. Yeah. The peso plunged in value. During that stretch of time, U.S. corn exports to Mexico decreased. And for the moment, Japan's the largest market for U.S. corn. Yeah. Um, but, that could, you know, like I said, that's in the first five months of this year. That was a calculation first done by uh, one, of my, one of the people I know, Alan Burga at Bloomberg. Uh-huh. And I went and checked, and yeah, that, that is how it stacks up at the moment. Um, so anyway, we go back to for U.S. farm groups. NAFTA was one, it is wonderful because there's been a tremendous increase in U.S. agricultural flow during, you know, since NAFTA took effect in 1994. Right. I mean, it's like two or three times. It's been a huge increase. Um, and you know, even before the election, farm groups were a little, well, more a little. They, they, they you know, like I said, Trump was popular in rural America because you know, love ethanol, love ethanol, reduce regulations, going to get to tax reform. Um, you know, and for people who are conservative, you know, politically conservative, that's pretty alluring. That's an alluring set of. Um, 
uh, campaign you know, themes. <laughs> but you know, during that time, I mean, they, you know, the farmers were worried about Trump's talk about pulling out of the Chancellor's Pacific Partnership, which he did in the first day in office. Yep. And his, you know, repeated statements that he would, you know, tear up NAFTA if he, you know, and just drop out of it if he couldn't get a better deal. Um, there's a anecdote that goes around that uh, Sonny Perdue uh, helped dissuade Trump from abandoning NAFTA by going to the White House with a map I heard of that. the United States. Yeah. And, you know, they colored in. The states that voted for you know that that, that you know in electoral votes went for Trump. Yeah, and many of them were ag states. And the message was, you know, Mr. President, these people don't want you to, to drop out of NAFTA. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I heard that story too. Yeah. And I also heard yeah. that uh, that the Prime Minister that uh, Trudeau had to call him, or his, or the you know uh, agricultural right, secretary yeah. had to call him and explain. You know, and the same thing with the Mexicans. Like, it all had to be explained to him, you know, what this would actually mean in terms of food prices and, you know, and his constituency and so forth. I mean, you know, astonishing. But anyway, that's the way it was. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, I mean, the farm groups, tobacco from the USTR, United States Trade Representative, is the anomaly in charge of trade policy, although Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross is kind of the lead guy right now. Anyway, mm-hmm. USTR held hearings to, to compile its list of what, is, what will the United States seek in the national negotiations. And farmers showed up, and most of them said, you know, just don't mess up anything. <laughs> right. Please. <laughs> uh, and, and part of this, is, and, and, and I mean, Sonny Perdue has said this, the administration has said it as well, and then, and, which is like, you know, we're not going in there to make anything worse. We're only looking for you know, to, to gain benefits. So we're not going to, you know, we're not going to try to mess things up for you. But the problem, you know, the, the, the concern for farm groups is that, you know, you can be taken hostage. Yeah. You know, somebody in another, you know, like, you know, somebody in another country wants to get something you know, for their side. So they, they'll just say, okay, we're going to, you know, we feel like, you know, we're going to put uh, quotas on imports of, you know, dairy products. Right. And, you know, suddenly you know, you've gone from a sector where everything was fine and you're looking to make a, you know, pick up some ground and now you're being pushed back from, the, from where you were. Right, right. That's, that's what, but, you know, it's not all hunky-dory. And just like a while ago we were talking about farm income and how some sectors do well, some sectors haven't, but overall farm income is at a particular level. But within the ag community, yeah, they, you know, overall they love NAFTA. Don't want to, you know, don't mess with that duty-free access. But, you know, the dairy folks have issues with the way oh, yeah. Canada runs its supply management system for milk. Um, the wheat, wheat farmers along the, uh, the northern border say that when they try, if they try to sell wheat in Canada, Canada has regulations which end up pricing their wheat as if it was feed wheat. And the feed wheat means it's going to be sold to livestock, and right. it's not very good quality because wheat basically is grown for human consumption. Right. So they say every time we try to sell wheat in Canada, we get gypped on a price. But they say Canada can send all the wheat at once down our way, and you know, those Canadian farmers they get a fair price. So the wheat farmers want things changed because they get price supports from their government. Um, I want to. No, 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 I, no, and we also haven't even mentioned. 
the, the fruit and vegetable guys in Florida, and probably also in Texas, but Florida talked about it, they're worried about you know, things like tomatoes grown in Mexico during the winter and coming north uh-huh. because, you know, that displaces what they're producing. Sure. So there's, yeah. so, you know, there's, there's, there are issues that people can talk about within agriculture that go beyond the you know, do no harm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, of course. But I think, you know, I think the draconian sort of sentiments that uh, Trump throws out that scare the crap out of everybody um, are not making negotiations towards better deals or, you know, making some sort of quota import. However, that works. Uh, it is not improving the overall picture for American agriculture in you know, as far as I can tell. But we only have a few minutes left, Chuck. And um, as I predicted, we've barely gotten through one third of these oh, questions. Right, right. Um, but so I'm going to jump to the last one, which is the following. If you were king of the forest, Chuck Abbott, what what would your prescription be for U.S. agricultural policy going forward? Would you be an Earl Butts or would you be a Joel Salatin? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or somewhere in between, which yeah, is, that's yeah. where I would be. I, I would probably end up somewhere in between, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking we wouldn't get to that question, so I didn't, you know, I didn't <laughs> spend as much time thinking about it as I should have. Now, the, the United States, you know, is, is remarkably lucky for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that the country is in a, you know, has, is in a temperate, climate, yeah. and it has, you know, wonderfully productive soil, um, soils, and, you know, and, and, and all, it has so many natural advantages. Yes. And the other advantage which the United States possesses is that it is a, that it is a continental country. You know, it's, right. it's a big country. Um, and you think back through history and the Things how it could have turned out differently, you know, like if, for instance, if Thomas Jefferson had not decided to buy Louisiana, the territory of Louisiana, from the French. Yeah. Or, if, you know, then of course, then you also get that. I mean, if we didn't have those wars that got. Or, or for instance, if Texas. Yeah, you know, if we didn't had, have Texas. Had decided that's what to I was remain thinking. a republic instead of joining the, uh, the United States. Yeah. The country would look a lot different. But the fact is, because it's a big country. It has a lot of heft in the world, and it also, you know, again, because it's a big country, has tremendous, you know, advantages as far as food production. If because we were talking earlier, and you said, well, geez, wouldn't price, would, won't, won't we, we prices go up because we're having problems in the northern plains where we grow all the spring wheat? And he's like, this is such a big country, right? That things like that kind of balance out. Yeah. You know, um, they had you know they had a nice you know, they, wheat yields in other parts of the country were fairly decent, and the United States has a big you know has a big inventory. So, but when you get what would I do differently? You know? Oh gosh, there's a farm bill to be written. Um, I wish you were writing it, Chuck. Yeah, uh, well, I don't know if that would be. Why don't thing. they? Why don't they consult the, uh, with you? Yeah, you know, the, the, yeah. You know, a few years ago, actually, I got to write a a research paper on, on farm bill issues. And, you know, one, one of the, you, you could arguably have a good time having a debate over what should the agricultural policy of the United States be. Yes. Because at the moment, we have, you know, the United States has a variety of ideas or principles that some ways kind of get in, you know, 
you know, competing with each other. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, you know, the, the justification for farm, farm bills is to assure, to, to assure an adequate supply of food at, a, at an affordable price. That's a very post-World War II kind of explanation. It's but a very post-World War II uh, sentiment. Because yeah. I don't think that uh, that sentiment really exists right now in the hearts and minds of our legislators. Right. I think there's right. a very right. different sentiment out there. Right. right. So, you know, the farm program was invented in the 30s because prices were terrible, and it, it was this mishmash between supporting prices and supporting farm income. Yeah. And we continue to go forward with that. In the, in the intervening decades, they tacked on you know, how conservation, meaning soil, you know, preventing soil erosion, assuring yeah. water quality wildlife habitat, that those were equally important. Um, so you have programs that essentially take fragile land out of production, and we have programs that encourage production of marginal land. Um, and, and you run into the problem, which comes up every year and gets discussed every farm bill, that so much, you know, so much of the USDA's, you know, Agri- you know, farm program spending you know, goes out the door in annual payments, either in crop subsidies or conservation payments, and there's perennially not enough money for research. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, if you have, if you had that blank sheet of paper and ask people what should what you know, what should you be doing, it's like putting money in the in the savings account. You should be putting money into research. Yes. To assure the continued flow of new. You know, new you know, new crop varieties, uh, new new management practices that will yeah. improve yields and reduce the need the need for artificial you know, synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. Um, I think you have hit yeah. the nail on the head there, my friend. And unfortunately, I've got to, yeah. I've got to call it quits here. But, um, but that is exactly what I think. Because right now, agricultural research is dictated by uh, large agrochemical, agro-business-type companies. Mm-hmm. And um, there is very little independent research going on. Right. And, and, and uh, part of that has been because that's you know, huge. Government, you know, public funding of agricultural research has been on a steady decline for decades. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Chuck, we will pick this up again in September. I will be inviting you back. Um, oh, to... okay. great. <laughs> well, I'd love to make this kind of a semi-regular thing. Maybe we can collaborate on topics um, that yeah. you're interested in that I can then draw you out on. Um, but okay. I will... Um, I will say goodbye for now, and thank you so much for joining me. And um, and thanks to my sponsor, and <laughs> and we'll be back next week with another great show. Thanks for listening, folks. See you then. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please 
Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Searching for the